1: Welcome to today's repost of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. I knew that we were gaining some traction at the start of Series 2 when we were pitched today's guest, an international business superstar who'd actually been the youngest dragon on Canada's Dragon's Den. She spilled a few of the secrets about the show.
0: Most people don't know about the show is that we film it all in one block. So we basically see 250 pitches in 17 days.
1: From launching her first company, a caviar business in university, to founding Clearbank, a billion-pound venture capital firm, she's always looking at the future of business.
0: Because we have so many companies. I mean, we have over 20,000 companies that have connected to the Clearbank platform.
1: Let's join the youngest cast manager of Canada's Dragon's Den, Michelle Romanow. Michelle, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. I thought we could start by explaining where your idea from ClearBank came and how it's different to most traditional venture capital firms out there.
0: Yeah, Jimmy. Well, it's certainly great to be here. You know, It was a really interesting experience. I've been an entrepreneur through and through. As you can see, done everything from build a fishery from scratch and we were trying to build caviar to an e-commerce company. I get asked to join the cast of Dragon's Den. I'm quite young and for the first time I'm changing positions. I'm becoming an investor versus just a founder. Most people don't know about the show is that we film it all in one block. So we basically see 250 pitches in 17 days. What I was seeing was all of these entrepreneurs come on the show and they're giving up huge portions of both equity and control of their business. And when you ask them what they need the capital for, they're like, well, these are e-commerce businesses. They need to go buy Facebook ads. They need to go buy inventory. And there was a part of me that's like, this is such a bad deal for founders. And I said, look, why don't we try a different deal type? Why don't I remember it was a father-son team? They were making these wooden iPhone cases, and I said, "Look, instead of giving you the hundred thousand dollars you're looking for and taking ten percent of your company forever, why don't I give you the hundred thousand you're looking for, and instead take ten percent of your revenue until I get back my capital plus six percent? So for a hundred grand, I was charging a hundred and six thousand dollars. This." was not alone. There was. This was a true revenue share deal. There was no personal guarantee. There was no fixed payment timelines. There was no compounding interest. And the founders that day were like, oh yeah, we'll definitely take this. I mean, we get to keep our company, but we also get to invest the money on marketing. And we know that if we invest $100,000 in ads, we're going to make $400,000 in sales. And so that was really the beginning. And Jimmy, I don't think I ever guessed from there we would start such a movement. I mean, today, as you said, we've invested over a billion dollars. And really, I think what struck a chord is we didn't realize that 50% of, you know, venture capital dollars were going straight to Google and Facebook. I mean, it was such a huge use of proceeds, which means that founders were using the most expensive capital to do something that really should have been repeatable and scalable. Now we've expanded, you can use your capital for anything. It's not just inventory and ads. It's whatever you need to grow your business. But it's really struck a chord because it's very different than the traditional options of going to a venture capitalist. It takes three to six months to raise money, which is a very long period of time. We get people offers in 20 minutes. And it's very different than a bank because... They're time-consuming as well and they take a personal guarantee, meaning if your business fails, your personal assets are on the line.
1: And that's also one of the key things that you've done as well, isn't it, with ClearBank is you alluded to it there that you've automated the application system because that's one of the problems with access to finance and so on. There's a lot of bias involved in terms of people pitching and going to VC firms and getting those intros. You're actually taking a lot of it from existing data that e-commerce companies have already out there. Can you explain us a bit about that?
0: Yeah. So what we ask founders to do is to connect us to the apps that run their business. So you know, this is their payment processor, their bank account, where they're spending money on ads. And then with that, all with AI, we're looking at how these businesses are doing. And really what we're looking at is their unit economics. We're making sure that if they're selling an iPhone case for 50 pounds, it costs them 10 pounds to make and $10 in ad spend, and there's still some margin left over there. And that is just very different because what has happened in venture capital is that venture capital is a human to human business, where if you know someone, I mean, I would say 95% of VCs don't take cold email intros, right? So effectively, you're limiting who you see to the people in your network, which means if you went to the best universities, you have no problems raising venture capital. But if you are from somewhere else and just came up with a great idea, it's very hard for you to access capital. And I'm just a huge believer that great ideas come from anywhere. And in fact, sometimes it's the entrepreneurs that had no silver spoon as a kid who understand kind of that grit and resilience it takes to make it. And so it's one of the things I'm immensely proud of is we've backed eight times more women than the venture capital industry average. And again, Jimmy, we did none of this on sourcing. It's not like we had a special program to source women. This was just using AI and letting data make our investing decisions. And then the second thing is that 70% have been outside of London, which is great because what happens and the same thing happens in the U.S. is that venture capital is distributed only in these major centers, right? 80% of VC dollars in the United States is distributed in four states in America, California, New York, Texas, Massachusetts, it's crazy. It just doesn't have the reach. And so really you can see why this has been such a revolutionary shakeup on the model, right? Because we're using a totally different way to make our decisions than venture capital has. And we're doing it at scale. I mean, at the beginning, I remember Wall Street, like I did 300 meetings on Wall Street with my co-founder Andrew and people laughed at us. They said, you'll never get your money back and this will never work. And we said, no, we're pretty sure the data will be more indicative. And so it's pretty fun to be able to to see that this has worked out.
1: Be able to go back to them. Absolutely. I mean, is there any part of you, though, that sometimes thinks, because so many VCs aim for the kind of like 100x return and all of this, that looks at the 6% and thinks that you could maybe go for more than that at any point? Or are you happy at that and doing it with a whole load of companies rather than picking one or two that can be the 1,000% gains, etc.?
0: Well, that is the VC model. Is that they basically have to say no to 99.9% of business models because their threshold is can this company 10x in one year? And I think we've seen in the last few years that that's created a lot of very strange behaviors, right? Was we work fine to just grow at three or 4x a year? I don't know. They would have been an exceptionally valuable company. But this incredible amount of capital chasing a business and almost forcing it to grow at that speed, I think has some downturn effects. And then what's happened is we've started turning up our nose at what are incredible outcomes. I mean, if you build a 20 million pound company or a 50 million pound company and you sell that, I mean, that is life-changing money for the founder. But that doesn't make a difference in a VC portfolio because they basically got two times their money back and their whole model works on two winners and eight losers. And so the two winners have to be these 10x hundred X returns. And so I think venture capital is an asset class. It's just a very limited asset class. And there are so many more businesses that I think can be big and meaningful that can still grow at two, three, four X a year. And we can be fueling those companies.
1: Yes, and it's still that democratization of venture capital, I think is so exciting. And we've seen over the last month, record numbers of businesses being founded in the UK, which is interesting because quite often in the last decade, that's been used as a bit of a barometer of health of the economy. Whereas it's gone up so much in the last year, It's people being forced into necessary entrepreneurship rather than opportune entrepreneurship. But you're right, there are some amazing companies out there that people are starting on the side as well. And we've discussed before about how that's one of the benefits of the kind of modern economy is that you don't need to quit your job on the Friday and start your business on the Monday you can scale it up and down and see how you get on and have a minimal viable product and see how that does before deciding to go with it full-time. One of the questions that we ask all of our guests on the show is the forward-looking, where do you think jobs of the future are going to come from? You talk a lot about at the beginning of ClearBank that a lot of the money that was raised just went straight into Facebook, Google ads, and so forth. How important do you think that the digital marketing is when it comes to the future of jobs?
0: Oh, it's a big question. And this is going to be a very big year of changes because there are going to be many things on the privacy thread that is going to change Digital ads this year. But I think generally, here's how I would look at it. You know, Jimmy, if you looked at things, and I can actually speak of experience because I was running an e commerce company in 2010, there was no Facebook ads. Google ads were still pretty early. When you had to go acquire customers, you had to go buy, you know, a page in the newspaper and you had to go buy a billboard and you had Absolutely zero tracking of who was coming to you and where they saw you. You could ask a little drop down question saying, Where did you find us? And that was extremely inaccurate. And then the minimum purchases to get into those mediums were much higher. So, you know, it cost a minimum of 10, 20, 30,000 to start buying billboards or out of home media. It cost way more to start buying television advertising. To be honest, the digital platforms are not given and haven't been given enough credit for all of these tiny businesses and small businesses that they enabled that could grow really quickly because you can start buying a Facebook ad with 50 bucks and you can start buying a Google ad with $100 and you can see if that works for you and you can see if you're spending less on the ad than what you're making. And so that was really transformational for building all of these e-commerce companies. And I would agree, it is very important to look at the amount of new businesses being created every year. And some of these will be side hustles that will turn into something much larger. And some of them will be big companies. Like I look at the companies we backed in the UK, right? There's companies like Temporally London that had a great brick and mortar presence and user capital to get into the e-commerce businesses. And then there's like a straight teeth direct that was just a digitally native brand that grew up and figured out how to sell a better version of orthodontics online.
1: Yeah, and they're great companies, right? And an example of where the sort of e-commerce can change things. And is that one of the things that you provide with Clearbank? Because we talk about there being so much financial capital available at the moment, and it all being plunged into just a few companies. It's one of the things that you help with, because this marketplace is changing so fast in how to do it. Is that one of the things that Clearbank offers people is, we've done this several times before with similar companies. Here are the best digital marketing strategies for your company.
0: I mean, our goal is to offer capital, network, and advice. So we should be able to give you that capital to grow. We should be able to connect you with the folks that have either had either the challenges or struggles or questions you're doing because we have so many companies. I mean, we have over 20,000 companies that have connected to the ClearBank platform today. The last thing is advice, right? We can tell you, we can give you recommendations on partner software you should be using. We can give you recommendations on what is changing in the advertising environment, what agencies that might be helping helpful to you based on your kind of stage and scale of growth. We started with just the capital piece, but quickly realized that people were looking for way more than that.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. And when it comes to that networking, you know, it's so important. And as somebody who's been an entrepreneur from a young age, particularly, what advice do you give people in terms of trying to build a network in an online world? Because I think it's something that we're all having to get used to and grapple with. And there are many opportunities in terms of it democratizing networks in some regards, but it can also be even more of a challenge in some ways to network through a computer screen.
0: It's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy because you used to just have these natural ways of coming up to people at a cocktail party or setting up a dinner and kind of proposing an idea. Now it is much more deliberate. I think that the reality is that with COVID, I have just decided myself, I am finding the silver lining, right? i told myself that 2021 was not the year of surviving, it is now thriving. And so then you look at the bright side, right? The reality is, is when you do Zoom calls, you can talk to people in seven time zones, do seven back-to-back calls in a single day. And that was impossible when you were running through airports, flying around in different time zones yourself, tired as all hell, <laughs> trying to figure out how to get to the right Place at the right time when your Uber app wasn't working. And so it's easy to forget those moments. And some of those were exciting, but now I just have to think, okay, we have to connect in a different world. Everyone is far more open. The ask of people, even people that have a great amount of authority and clout, you know, the ask for them to get on a Zoom call is far easier than the ask to meet in person somewhere. And so I think it is now just about changing your mindset into I am going to get an email introduction. I'm going to keep in touch with people digitally. I'm going to see what they're writing. I'm going to check in and I'm going to continue to build my network. But look, I have the same gut reactions, which is this got harder. And I'm just mentally changing myself to my mindset of actually, Michelle, maybe this got easier. I agree with that. And I think
1: one of the interesting things is there. you talk about going on Dragon's Den right at the outset is like one of the most competitive things that you can do. And you sort of see 250 pitches over the course of a couple of weeks. What is the best advice that you can give for somebody that's wanting to reach out to someone like you who's been there and made it? How can you make yourself relevant? What are your tips for
0: that? So, my first tip is be funny. We get hundreds of messages on all sorts of social media platforms. Most of them are kind of, you know, like I have this thing. I mean, the easier you can explain your thing or if you can send a link or a video, that's actually probably the best. I mean, if you want me to watch a 20 second video, I can usually do that just because it's a lot easier to understand something. But I actually love when people are funny with me, right? It's like, you know, they'll send me an email and they'll send me another email and then they'll be like, we are just checking that you weren't eaten by a bear. And then there'll be like a bear gif or something (laughs) like (laughs) that. And some of these are so funny. I burst out laughing and I respond right away because the creativity is like almost out of control. (laughs) And so I think, you know, that would be kind of one of my unconventional tips. The other one is that every, you know, celebrity uses social media a little bit differently. So, For example, I'm pretty active on my own Instagram. I do my own stories and I I like that medium and I'm decently active on my own LinkedIn. But like, I'm not a huge Twitter user. I should be probably a huge Twitter user. I just find it a pretty depressing platform. (laughs) And so you have to kind of figure out and try and just be clever about where people are actually there because it's like, you know, I have someone that will look through my Twitter messages, but it's not me. And so if you want to get my attention, finding the right medium is really important. And you can usually get a sense of that based on how people are posting and how it feels genuine and unedited are usually the posts that that we're doing ourselves versus some of the stuff that we're coming up as part of a bigger content strategy.
1: It's so interesting in terms of the time that entrepreneurs spend on social media. And there is the school of thought of it can be time distraction and so on. But it can be the most amazing way to build networks and contacts. But it's going back to what you were saying before about being intent and being precise with it. And also knowing which platforms to use, right? Because there's just so many social networks out there. I mean, I saw that you've got 50,000 followers on LinkedIn, for example, which is probably more productive, I'm guessing, in some ways than Twitter, because you fire out a tweet. And I read a stat the other day about how it's effectively, it's almost live for about 25 minutes. Whereas on LinkedIn, it tends to hang on people's algorithms and screens much more, which for a kind of business side makes it much more productive. Like whereas almost Twitter is like a digital media lobby in terms of, you know, stuff gets produced and then disappears quite quickly. I just wonder how much time you spend, and you talk about Instagram there as well, but how much time you spend in terms of thinking out your own social media strategy and how important that is.
0: It's a great question. So the first thing that I would compare social media a little bit to is like food. Like when you want to go on a diet, you don't just get to stop eating. (laughs) Like That's not really effective. You have to kind of change what you're eating and limit what you're eating and think about things a little bit differently. And I think that social media is at that point where it is extremely easy to spend an entire day on social media and really not accomplish very much. (laughs) It's one of those things where, I think you are right, the addiction of opening a platform and they call it the, um like, it's like the slot machine. It's like every time there's like a new feed and a new something. And every time you refresh that, you just feel that urge to be like, is there any new content? I think it's very dangerous for our brains in general. But as you said, these are extremely powerful platforms that have been enormous in helping people grow audiences. I mean, I got to see so many different things. I mean, one of the things that was crazy last year, as I remember, as the crisis was starting, we had a huge shortage of PPE in the country. And so I did this post, you know, on an Instagram story about, look, I can source some stuff from China because we obviously have backed so many e-commerce companies. I have really deep contacts there. And Jimmy, I had never seen anything so viral in my life. Like I, my inbox, literally every minute was getting an email. I don't even know how people were finding my email. It was like heads of hospitals, fire police chiefs, all sorts of things. I mean, this is like the very beginning of the pandemic. And so you think of the feedback you get from social media and how powerful that could be or like wow, like I could have never got a message like that out without a following. But you think of this addictive nature. So what do I do? Well, the first thing is I try and use limits on social media and trying to be deliberate about what I'm going to do. So I have a woman I work with on my team and we talk about here are the things I'm thinking about and how do we make this into content and great posts? Could some of these be written? Could some of these be videos? We do that for half an hour once a week. We do another half an hour of filming and thinking about what to do and how to put that stuff together. And then I really just try and limit myself on, you know, I get 30 minutes a day on some of these platforms because it can be a huge time suck. And I would agree. I think LinkedIn today has the most organic. Viral volume. And so you can post something on LinkedIn, and if it organically grows, and if people like your content, that could last for five days on the platform. You're probably right about Twitter. It's probably about 25 minutes. And then Instagram is important to me because it is where the majority of e commerce products are still sold. And so to understand what is happening on that platform and how people are viewing it is the other part. And I just find it fun. I find stories are really fun. The other thing that's really interesting about social media is all of the platforms have almost universally copied each other's features. They even start to look the same, right? They have the the story feature at the top and they all are having a disappearing tweets or fleets are coming out now. Like it's, I think you have to just pick your moat and try and grow there because it is very hard to be like, okay, now I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it on five platforms. That feels like an almost impossible task unless you are a full-time content creator.
1: In terms of more immediate skill requirements, you're growing ClearBank in the UK right now, and you're seeing great growth as you were talking about earlier. What kind of skills and roles are you looking for here? And how can people demonstrate the ClearBank culture to you? And what are you looking for?
0: Let's divide that into a few things. So the first, we're looking for like incredible founders to back. Let's start there. And so there is so many great e-commerce companies in the UK. I think so many of them have thought already today of how to sell into Europe and into other countries. And the UK has always been known for incredible consumer brands that have really gone international and done well. So the first thing we're looking for is great founders and the ability to back them. The second is internally, we're building our own team out in the UK. And that's really about helping us connect with those incredible founders and helping us find those anywhere they are right and so again it's not just let's look at who is a big name in london it's actually let's see if we can find all of these entrepreneurs that might not have a lot of press you know at our own team internally we really try and hire ex-founders ourselves because we think that they understand and get the empathy of what it's like to be a founder and people that have a winning attitude and want to take responsibility and so we're looking for lots of different roles in terms of partnerships and being able to grow the UK. UK is our first international country. And so there'll be a lot of growth that we will be able to do throughout Europe from the UK office.
1: Yeah, well, it's tremendously exciting. Can you tell us about one of the key traits of an entrepreneur is being able to surround themselves with good people and being able to find those people as well? And that's always particularly hard when you're first starting out and you don't have much experience of that. Can you tell us about what we call a serendipity hire on the show? Someone approached you at an event or something similar to that and where it ended up working out really well?
0: Yeah, there's been so many people that I've found at events that have introduced themselves to me that I've gotten to know over time. One of them I was just thinking about, probably the most recent one is a guy named Mark LeFleur, who I met you know, on Dragon's Den. He had the idea that people want to eat meat, but they want to know where their meat is coming from. And so they want to buy from local farms. So he said, look, we'll do a basically a, a meat in a box delivery once a month, and you can kind of choose what's in your box and it will get delivered once a month. He was doing a million he'd done a million dollars in annual sales when he came on the show was very persistent after the show and making sure that we closed this deal I remember we built the first Facebook ads on my dining room table in my apartment and the company just sold for 17 million dollars like January 4th and so it was one of those like amazing meetings where you can kind of see and believe in the potential and it's just can create some really amazing outcomes
1: what a great story. And at the other end of the scale, ducking disasters. So the autocorrect that we've all done on the iPhone. Can you think of something entrepreneurial where it's just gone completely wrong? I mean, starting a caviar business out of university must have been a pretty big, bold step. Were there any ducking disasters there?
0: I like, I like the ducking disasters. You know, what we had figured out was worldwide supply of caviar was down because the world had overfished the Caspian Sea. So we were able to find a wild supply of sturgeon actually in Eastern Canada that hadn't been caught for a number of years for a bunch of different reasons. And so, yeah, we were, crazy enough to say no to all of our job offers, move to the East Coast and attempt to build this fishery. And I mean, this is everything it sounds like, Jimmy. This is like, oh, it's fishermen. My hands need deep in fish. Like we were gutting these fish ourselves. (laughs) And you know, I had never been fishing in my life before this. And remarkably, chefs love the product. It was great. We were able to sell it. But I certainly didn't anticipate that we were going to go into a massive recession in 2008. And I was going to be 21 years old selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. (laughs) So, i think that that's part of the fun i mean i have had let's just start with ducking disasters like i think one of the things that people need to know about founders is that 80 percent of your life is failure and so i could talk about how the caviar business failed i could talk about how their first three business models at clearbank failed and that was my fifth company failure as a founder is a byproduct of success like you have to try things have them not work do these iterations keep trying again keep doubling down on the tiny thing that did work and deleting all the things that didn't work. That is actually how you build great companies. And we forget about that, right? We think that these incredible companies all started overnight with one idea. They really took years and years of iteration to get right.
1: I mean, that's a question that actually one of our listeners wrote in, Ben Baxendale-Smith. How do you keep that determination. Like you say, there were a few different iterations of the clear bank business model, but by then you've been an entrepreneur for close to a decade. You kind of know that the disaster period is like a byproduct that you have to go through. But when you're starting out fishing on the East Coast of Canada, how do you keep that resolved? Because you were like a very successful student as well who got a degree in engineering. Yeah, there were lots of easier routes and it's Easy to look back on it all now, but when you were kind of in that boat, literally, as it were, yeah, how do you
0: keep that resolve going? So resilience is a skill and a muscle you build over time. And so the more you kind of are okay with something working and the more you can push yourself out of your comfort zone and the more you get comfortable with that the more normal that feels. And so I actually try and use other activities to mimic that. You know what I mean? Like doing a workout, I'm like, am I out of my comfort zone? It's like, am I learning a new sport? I recently picked up kite surfing and I was like, oh my God, this is really hard. And I'm super scared and I'm in the water. That is the type of stuff that you need to be doing yourself to be building your whole resilience muscle. The other thing in the early days that were super important was actually the co-founders and the people you've worked with. Because one of the things that happens is that you need other people around you so you can carry each other when things are not going well. So when one person is demotivated, the other person will be like, well, look at this. We can almost do this. So I would say that that was critical. The other hack that I've always used my whole career is I spend a lot of time reading the stories of other entrepreneurs. They are motivating every single time. It doesn't matter if you read the story of Jack Ma building Alibaba or Steve Jobs building Apple or the McDonald's story, literally anything you will realize that most of these incredible companies almost didn't make it for not the first years, for the first 10 years. And you're reminded that that is just a completely normal part of the entrepreneurial journey. So I think that would be my one tip is to read the stories of other founders, to surround yourself with great founders. And then probably the third thing is to surround yourself with another network of entrepreneurs. Because what tends to happen, Jimmy, is that when we become first-time founders, you want to test your idea with everyone because you think it's like good market research. And so you have an idea and inevitably you ask your smart accountant friend and your smart lawyer friend. What those people tell you is they actually tell you all of the reasons your idea isn't going to work. And the worst part is they're right (laughs) because they're very good at identifying risk. But what actually makes an early stage startup is not the elimination of risk. It's really focusing on those three things that can get you, you know, lift off the ground, right? It's like closing that big partnership. It's like hiring that one big person. And so other entrepreneurs, when you're around them and you feel like you're failing, will remind you that, you know, look, I also had all these risks, but you just got to focus on closing that one big deal. Then you'll get a bunch of momentum and then things will keep going. And so I always now protect my ideas from, I think what I would call my risk adverse friends in my circle, because some of their feedback isn't always the most helpful.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. I, I remember speaking to friends about ideas and they just said, well, if it's as easy as you're making out, somebody would have done it already. <laughs> I just remember thinking, well, we wouldn't have got very far in human history if we'd always taken that attitude with things. <laughs> well, look, One of the things you talked about there, like reading the entrepreneurial stories as well, kind of leads into my last question, which is, have you read a particularly inspirational book? recently from an entrepreneurial perspective that you found inspiring? And it doesn't have to be the Jack Mars or anything like that. There are amazing entrepreneurs who are creating stories and products all the time. Is there one that's particularly stuck with you over the last year or so?
0: I'll give you a couple that I've read recently. I think one of them, and he's not always the most popular entrepreneur, is Chip Wilson wrote a book called Little Box Stretchy Pants about how he built Lululemon. And Chip didn't do everything perfectly, he is completely honest about it in the book, which I think is so critical because there's a lot of times people write books in their PR books, right? They're, let me tell you the best version of this story. You can tell when he wrote, back to your duck thing, like he gave no ducks. <laughs> and it's really obvious. I mean, he did not make the best deal with a private equity firm when the company was much later. When Lululemon was at five stores, believe it or not, he put a personal guarantee on his house to build the fifth one. You know, He did all sorts of things, but he really... Really saw a movement 10 years before he saw it. He really takes you through how much failure was in his career before this moment. And so I think it's probably one that not a ton of people have heard about, but I mean, a really cool story and a really raw story where you can kind of get the feel of like, yeah, I'm pretty sure things really happened in this way. <laughs> The other book that's not an entrepreneur, but I think is an amazing book is uh, David Goggins' book called Can't Hurt Me. David Goggins was the Navy SEAL that has run, I think he's one of the, the best athletes in the world, run like 100 ultra marathons or something insane. But he just talks about mindset and how we create so many limiting beliefs. And I think the best part of the book is he talks about when you know, you're know you really struggling and when things just feel like they are, everything is going wrong and you have nothing left to give, you can't run another mile. At that moment, you actually have 60% left. You, you, It's in there. Like just when you think you're done, it's you actually have another 60%. I thought it was the most amazing mental trick because there are these moments as a founder where it gets so long and so grueling and you feel like you can't take one other piece of bad news and one other person quitting on your company and one other competitor coming after your lunch. And I think that the mindset we choose is far more powerful. And so he's not an entrepreneur, but I think it's an incredible book for entrepreneurs to read. The other tactical one that I love is Chris Voss's book on negotiation, which is Never Split the difference. I think it's a great book for entrepreneurs to have it in their toolkit. Yeah, that
1: is one I'm currently reading at the moment and sitting on my desk. So no I agree way. with you. Yeah, yeah, it's always interesting. I think we should always do a whole other podcast about like sport and entrepreneurship. But you've related to it a few times in terms of pushing yourself out, in terms of doing a new activity or workout or just doing something that you haven't done before. And it's so true because I often think of sports games and you see people at World Cup finals and at the end of it, they've actually still got energy to, you know, move about and so on. And you just think that actually the human reserves are incredible. Like you've always got that. And it's like something I saw at Downing Street as well. Like some of the hours we worked were, were crazy. And if you put that in front of me saying you were going to do that, you just wouldn't think you. Could, but when you're in it, you just do find like human reserves from just the most incredible places.
0: I actually love that way to end off. I totally agree. One of the things that I find that was just really helpful, and I've always been a pretty active person, but I think exercise became a form of coping with COVID for me, is that I have a couple of things written on my computer and one of them says 4.4% better a week. Is 10x better a year? And I think it is so important. It seems impossible to do anything by 10x in a year. It's just like it seemed impossible that you would work those kind of hours and it was just so intense. But when you break that down into, I can get 4% better at anything in a week. And you can actually see that in fitness. It's like every workout I can just run two points faster on a treadmill and just lift a little bit harder and just do one more rep and you get that feeling because sometimes at work, we do these big abstract tasks where it just feels like you're running in a circle for six months. But ultimately, if you're focused, you can get to that 10x. And I think that is a huge part of the entrepreneurial mindset. I would love to do that as a second piece, but it is a very interesting way to to frame it. And I think about that more and more.
1: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful data point to finish on. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok, And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.